0: Hey, this is John Reed. Got Brian Summer for the Zen of Enterprise podcast. Live from Orlando, we got the fountain in the background. I hope you guys find that soothing to the ears. Oh, yeah, we're
1: right. And, uh, let me add to that. We've got cypress trees in the background, and uh, there's snowy egrets and gray uh, egrets and other stuff all over here. So who knows what's going to land right in the middle of this interview table. If we
0: get lucky, a gator might crawl up here, but who knows? We can only hope. Anyway, So yeah, we're, we're here in Orlando. We, we're just halfway through day two of Acumatica Cloud ERP show, and we're going to do a little bit of a breakdown of that in the second part of our recording. But before we get to that, I want to talk with Brian for a little bit about just general market stuff and what the today's enterprise buyer is looking for from providers. But I just wanted to start You were saying you you just read the story about Nielsen. I thought it was interesting because it just shows you how fast change is occurring. Yeah, the um,
1: article was in the New York Times, I believe it was today, and it talked about how um, one of Nielsen's TV uh, monitoring kind of people was sent a diary to keep track of all the shows they watched. except this guy had cut the cord with cable companies and was getting most of stuff from streaming media like uh, Netflix. And there was no place to put that information in the diary. And I I thought it was an instructive story because it shows just how quickly uh, entire industries are being changed by these new digital firms that are coming in, and there's new kinds of content, new kinds of data, and new things that are happening. And if you're a slow-moving firm, that kind of ossified kind of infrastructure and bureaucracy built in is just not relevant anymore in an age where digitalization is just coming like a uh, high-speed train.
0: And you actually just wrote a, a trilogy uh, for DiGenomica. I like calling it a trilogy because it, you know, make, gives it a gravitas like Lord of the Rings or something. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But it was basically looking at you looked at finance, HR, and IT mm-hmm. in turn, kind of looking. I think a little bit at this type of issue, right, in terms of like you basically gave each each one of those a hard time uh, for for basically. Not moving at the speed of business, is that a good summary? Or? Yeah,
1: that's, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know about the, I gave everybody a hard time. I was just basically <laughs> talking about, these are the issues we really need to be talking about, okay? This needs yeah. to be the kind of conversation uh, subset where uh, the business people ought to be looking at. And, you know, I'll give you some examples of like this speed challenge. The um, In the finance area, there's are just some fascinating opportunities where, uh, finance people can be tapping into huge new data stores to do a better job of budgeting, planning, and forecasting. You can now use information like social sentiment data to find out like what's going on with our products or our competitors' products in the marketplace. And if you find out that a competitor's got a ton of problems with one of their, their, uh, their uh, solutions, that might be an opportunity for you guys to raise your own revenue forecast because you may have a golden opportunity to take market share that you never had in the past. Likewise, um, you know, you can see things like in IT. One of the big debates is will IT actually lead the charge in move, helping companies mm. become a digitally viable kind of company in the future? And and uh, and just checking around with some uh, folks, and this isn't scientific, but it's just based on some interviews I've done lately. I can tell you right now, most companies are just not expecting their IT groups to lead it, simply because IT is very focused on data center operations, building their own private clouds, or patching and maintaining applications, those kind of things.
0: Yeah, and I, I think the thing that surprised me about some of your recent work is you're not, you're not a big fan of, of sort of hyping buzzwords, but you've been somewhat persuaded that, that big data, so to speak, used properly can have business value.
1: Yeah, but but let's be careful about it because uh, somebody asked me the other day, like, what's the one thing that keeps me up at night? And I said, well, it's like this. It's two sides of the same coin. I worry that uh, a lot of organizations are going going to put analytic tools and big data-powered analytic tools in the hands of the wrong people. They're not going to understand Mm -hmm. the underlying data behind it. They don't understand any of the assumptions or the algorithms or anything else. And when you do that, that's like giving the village idiot a tank. Uh, you know, if they ever got it running, there's no end to the damage they could create. On the other hand, the other side of the coin is I also worry with all these incredible tools out there that a lot of companies just aren't going to use them. So they're going to have all this opportunity, but they'll not take advantage of it. And the the smart firms are going to have smart people who understand the real risk and issues involved in this stuff and take appropriate safeguards, but also take advantage of all the opportunities these things
0: create. Well, I thought. You made it. You've been making an interesting point in a couple articles about the danger of HR-based algorithms for for hiring. Yeah, I I, um, I I think it it
1: bothers me to no end when I see people get all excited about an HR algorithm that can determine between say two or three people which one the company should hire, and it's the algorithm's not staring down looking at the individual. And uh, algorithms can't necessarily detect if somebody's lying to you or whatever but the real issue though is the bias that comes up many of these tools are built off of data sets that involve your old HR data and if your firm you know had a history of hiring a certain kind of person whether that's a certain ethnicity um, college background or what have you that's what you've got lots of data in your data set on, and that's what the algorithm is going to run against. Unfortunately, there may be some far better qualified individuals who you have no experience with in your data set, and therefore, they're not going to show up in the search results or whatever the results of the algorithm. And that's bias, and that's going to get some companies sued if they Mm. totally rely on that and they don't understand that. And this is why we got to have smart people who build these things and use them and understand what they mean.
0: Have you run into any companies in your travels of late that surprised you by the fact that they were doing some of these things the right way? Uh, I have hit some, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and the... Not
1: too many, huh? Well, they're they're less frequent than I would <laughs> like to see, yes. Um, but whether where the real focus is, is on, uh, generally it's been on top-line revenue kind of improvements more than anything else, or it's an extending, if you will, a better kind of experience for the customer um, and Most of them will not let me talk about what they're doing, which yeah. I understand. It's this stuff is massively competitively advantageous to companies. But just even and but one of the things I found fascinating is this stuff is highly democratic. Even smaller companies can take advantage of this. And one mm-hmm. of them, amazingly enough, after uh, spending a day with all the the incredible people there that were working on this stuff, I found out I, I, I was meeting with their uh, private equity investors. And they're they're going to spin off out of an existing manufacturing company with sales about $100 million a year. They're going to spin off four employees and a new analytic app and make a software company whose valuation is already greater than that of the manufacturing firm. Well,
0: so data can be an asset. Amen. On the other hand, it could be a liability, as you found out from one of your airlines, trying to get an upgrade today. Uh, so. Oh, yeah. Let's not go there. <laughs> no, we won't. <laughs> um, so I, I've been spending some time researching the, what I call the informed enterprise buyer. And in a nutshell, my thesis is that, that most marketing and sales departments are extremely poorly equipped to provide the types of information, the types of interactions the types of expert resources that today's buyer wants, and that they're completely out of sync, and need to completely reinvent. This is my thesis that I'm trying mm-hmm. to prove, which is probably the wrong way to go about it. But um, you you went through a couple of big uh, purchasing reviews, I think last year. Yep. So what do you what are you seeing? Uh, like. Uh, the other day, I bought a car.
1: I actually bought a brand new car, finally, and um, you know, I think we can all commiserate with this experience. Sometimes you don't know what you want to buy till you've been out there kicking tires and test driving things and the like. And I think some of the somewhat a lot of software buyers are going uh, through out there is the same thing. The last time they bought a serious piece of enterprise software probably was ten or more years ago. So things have changed a little bit in that time. And mm. uh, some don't know whether you spell cloud with a C or a K. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. you, know you, you get a lot of folks all up and down an entire spectrum of the learning curve. But what they do know is they know what they don't want. They don't want the same old stuff all over again. They're tired of on-premise. And, in fact, if I could just, you know, a couple of things that really stand out. They want to modernize functions whether that's finance, HR, the whole manufacturing operation, whatever, they absolutely want to modernize it. Uh, they know what they have right now might have been appropriate in 1985. It's just not viable today anymore. What they want is they want the kind of help from a consultant, integrator, vendor, whatever, to help them first become more aware of the potential or the opportunity. Take you know, I like to take clients out to... Um, I take them out to San San Francisco, San Jose, out to Silicon Valley, and I take them around to go see all the cool stuff that's been going on out there, and it's mind-opening or mind-blowing for these folks. What do they want right now? They want somebody else to take away all the misery that they go through patching, maintaining, and upgrading systems, hence the interest in multi-tenant cloud solutions. But more importantly, they also want someone who's going to deal with all of the integration testing As Mm. each vendor has like three and four new releases every single year, they want somebody to go in and retest all those, make sure nothing's going to break because what the customer really, really, really wants when you scratch that, you know, surface even deeper, they want to be out of the software business altogether.
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting. (laughs) And so that all rings true, but what does that mean for marketing? Well, I think for a lot of marketers, they're
1: focused on the wrong things. Uh, a lot of tech marketers first go in leading with the technology and not with the business problem. They're yeah. not leading with the experience or the experiential aspect of what is it like to work in like finance or HR in a company that has these kind of solutions. That experience is like, I go, I show up for work Monday morning and i find my system's have all been upgraded and i never had to talk to it i never had to call them nothing's broke right. it's a different experience and the experiential aspect is what needs to be brought out in marketing
0: yeah and yet i see so many marketing firms like oh you know let's let's get analyst firm g or f in here and sponsor a white paper and that's really going to move the needle
1: Well, if any of them are listening to this, I'll be happy to take that call from them. But uh, but, uh, now, seriously, um, um, you know, the first reaction of, okay, there's three kinds of problems that have to be solved in great technology marketing. The first one is there are companies out there that don't even know they have a problem and they need some education, some guidance, some leadership that says, help me understand what my problems are today. Put it in words I can relate to. The second is somebody who knows they have a problem but isn't clear on some general kinds of solutions they could go with. Is this something I outsource? Is this something I buy? Is it something I do on-prem or in a private cloud, or whatever? And they need some help whittling it down, like which kind of broad solution do I want? And then finally, you have those who know they have a problem, know the kind of broad solution they want. Now they need help picking between the two final candidates or whatever. Right. That's where 99% of most tech marketing material, white papers, whatever, is focused on that last group. right? And nobody really focuses on the stuff that leads to them to that answer. And that's where the smart marketers are because they quickly figure out who are the kind of people who have the problems they kind of solve in the broad general areas and for little or no money they find ways to help these people make these informed decisions and work their way through the thought process and then and only then when they're one of the probable finalists then they'll start spending real hard sales right. money on that effort.
0: And, and it isn't a lot of what you're talking about when you're creating that type of content that that helps people to make broader sense of, for example, changes in their industry and and what different companies are doing, isn't, isn't part of that seeding relationships? Like, so for example, when you write about these themes, in a way you're seeding future relationships with people who are gonna contact you and they wanna get to know you better because they trust that you're not selling them on something, right? And right. and through that process they learn to respect you as someone that they might come back to and say, "Hey Brian, I'm now evaluating certain products. Can you help me?" right? Like like you earn that over time, don't you?
1: Yeah, you're talking about the difference between selling and convincing. Right. And uh, when people read what you've got or watch the videos you put up or they listen to the podcast or whatever, if they believe what you're talking about. it makes sense to them it's logical it's well thought out, and it's not a sales pitch and not an infomercial right. uh, then you, you obviously not not only are you building credibility, but you you have a far better chance of actually convincing them of something and people don't generally don't buy until they 've been convinced first right and um, yeah it's um, uh, that's the secret I think in a lot of the best the best like uh, consulting partners I used to work with were geniuses at staying quiet, letting customers discuss their problems. And they never, maybe in the first two sales calls, they never once even talked about what the firm's capabilities were. They they let people, like in that Stephen Covey right. stuff, you know, uh, um, how was it? Uh,
0: uh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, it was a whole deal about uh, The habits of highly successful people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just think about wow, you, um, uh, Stephen Covey. We haven't dropped him in a podcast. I don't think.
1: <laughs> no, but it's c- uh, read
0: your it's, Stephen Covey, folks. It'll pay off. Yeah. Well, it's okay. All right. Anyway, let's <laughs> keep moving. <laughs>